Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 189. In this episode, we're talking about Joseph Pieper on spirituality with Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Warren. Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Warren is priest in charge at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Mishawaka, Indiana, and the author of Joseph Pieper on the Spiritual Life, Creation, Contemplation, and Human Flourishing, published by the University of Notre Dame Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Madison Pierce, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was a blast to chat with Reverend Dr. Warren on on this episode about his newest book published by the University of Notre Dame Press on on Joseph Pieper and his theology and writings about the spiritual life and the nature of the spiritual life. I've known Reverend Dr. Warren for about 15 years now. And when I first met him, he was this amazing drummer. I still think he's one of the best drummers I've ever uh, seen in my life. And it's just amazing to to uh, to hear him talk about things like roasting coffee as a spiritual practice and just thinking about all the very like tactile things that that he is very reflective and and contemplative about and this book is just very very fitting and it was a real joy to hear him uh discuss these things with us uh madison and amber what were some of the takeaways that you both had from our conversation with reverend dr warren i've sadly only known nate for 10 years um (laughs) which has been a, a real pleasure in seeing how um, his career has taken shape. But um, I really loved reading this book. Um, I think that he's going to talk, he talks a lot about the clarity that um, Pieper communicates with. And I think that he actually emulates that really well in the book. Um, and I really enjoyed some of his reflections on work and creation and how those come out in, in Pieper's work today. I've only known Dr. Warren for a couple of years. <laughs> However, I'm going to get to be his neighbor for a while, so I think I'm, I feel pretty honored about that. I really enjoyed the way that Nate brought out the earthiness of Peeper's thought, and uh, in particular, the way that he speaks and writes and communicates in a way that avoids jargon, in a way that is invitational and that is clear and accessible. And I think that is something that other philosophers and theologians can learn from, but it means that people can learn a lot from him even beyond those who consider themselves in the realms of philosophy and theology. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at twocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Warren. Well, Reverend Dr. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you all. Well, we're really excited to chat with you about your book on uh, Joseph Pieper and, and his uh, spirituality. Uh, we thought as a, as a way to get going, could you tell us a little bit about who Joseph Pieper is um, and you know, orient our, our listeners to this person and, and, and his thought? Sure. Um, but before we uh, jump into that, um, I'd just like to draw... Uh, yourself and your listeners' attention to an issue that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, I am an Armenian-American, and since December, there has been a blockade of ethnic Armenians in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, 
which has been blockaded by Azerbaijan. Um, what, since December, there have been no food, um, medicine, or water, or any kind of resources going to that area in an explicit attempt at ethnic cleansing of native Armenians to that territory. So I'd appreciate it. Um, any prayers and thoughts and action that can be done to alleviate the suffering of native Armenians in, um, the, in the Middle East would be hugely appreciated. But to your question about Joseph Pieper, um, so he's a, a German philosopher, lived or wrote throughout the 20th century, um, sort of exists right there in that time span, but born in 1904, but died in 1997. So he lived that whole time. Um, and he's a fascinating figure um, because he, um, on the one hand, uh, melds two universes, which aren't, weren't at the time typically thought to be um, meldable, which is a kind of Neoplatonism or Platonism along with uh, Thomism, which is a, uh, the study of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and so he was sort of a distinctive voice at that time. Um, he's also nearly ubiquitous in Thomist studies. Um, he's footnoted often all the time, but there's actually very little research done on him as a, as a person. And um, with regards to the, um, the renewal of the virtue ethics tradition within philosophical ethics and then theological ethics, um, he was re reintroducing the world of philosophical ethics into the that virtue tradition long before the sort of um, Anscombs and McIntyres. And so um, he really was, I see him as a precursor to this new, not new, um, renaissance of virtue ethics tradition, which really I think took off in the 19, in the 1980s. Um, but he, he's another interesting, and I, I hope attractive piece to your listeners if they wanna go out and read some Joseph Pieper is that um, he's known for being an incredibly clear writer. Um, as I've uh, noticed or noted in my book, he um, doesn't like jargon. He doesn't like to keep people out by using terminology that um, people won't be able to understand. And so in that way, he takes very difficult concepts and makes them very, very understandable and does it in very, very short books. <laughs> All of his works for the most part are in English translations at least within a hundred pages. Um, and so it's really easy to pick up a book by Joseph Pieper um, and, to, and to read it um, without having to always go to um, a, a Latin dictionary or a uh, knowing philosophical, theological, sociological, psychological jargon. Um, and so in that way, he's very accessible. Um, and so that's kind of who he is. Um, <clears throat> he also does, I think, a really great job of showing how these different pieces of a philosophical, theological, anthropology all interrelate with each other. So uh, the spiritual life is the moral life, which is connected to creation and theology as a doctrine proper. Um, and just does these connecting pieces really, really, really well. And another piece of his writing is, <clears throat> this may sound obnoxious, but it's actually hugely helpful because throughout his um, writing, he repeats himself a lot. 
but he repeats himself on one particular topic in many different contexts. And then later on in his career will sort of repeat that same theme, but in different contexts. And so actually reading his whole corpus many times in the process of writing this book was really fascinating making these connections like, oh, he says this about this here in this context. He says the same kind of principle over here, but now it's in this context and it easily connects to something else. And so in that way, he's again, like a, just a very clear writer. You can see um, consistency, consistency throughout his whole career and um, tracing his development um, from uh, his career as a, in his early career as a sociologist to his second career really as a, a psychologist eventually into uh, philosophy proper. And then really towards the end of his, his years, he's really delving into um, reading uh, deeply into Plato and the, and the, and the ancients. And so in this way, he's um, melds a bunch of worlds, super accessible and writes short books. Like what else could you want from, <laughs> from an academic accessible and easy. Um, and that way he's, he's a really great uh, uh, philosopher to jump into. And also can I say a very unique one as far as writing with clarity without jargon. And I think um, you bring this out well in your book, the way that he takes these concepts and he really incarnates them. Like he shows what they look like on the ground. And that's, that's really uh, a hallmark of his thought and his approach um, to philosophy. But I, I'm curious to know what your story is in terms of how you came to work on him. How did he grab you? Why? Uh, what what is your your past with him? Sure, um, great question. Thank you. Um, and just to reiterate, I, you're exactly right that um, there's just a pra like an almost pragmatism about taking the doctrine of divine ideas, which is kind of a, a no practical application kind of doctrine, but says actually there is important significance for how we engage not only God but creation in it. So that's I mean just a really great um, point, Amber. Um, I came about him kind of accidentally um, when I was doing my doctoral work at, at Durham. Um, my research focus there was on the idea that, of eudaimonia, sort of a reception history of the concept of happiness eudaimonia from Aristotle through St. Thomas into the early modern period, um, specifically in England and with reference to the doctrine of calling or vocation. Um, and I shared an office with many great and wonderful people, Madison, and um, one of them, uh, knowing what I was working on, handed me uh, Joseph Pieper's book on happiness and contemplation and said, have you, have you read this? I mean, no, I hadn't. And so I borrowed his copy and again, was just um, absolutely just taken in by his ability to discuss really intricate detailed topics like um, the difference between makarios and eudaimonia and, and play with all these concepts in a way that was totally engaging, totally easy to read. And I read the whole book in a single sitting, which for me is, I'm a slow reader. Like that was a, that was, that, that was a feat. Um, and so instantly became enamored by him started picking up some other stuff. Ultimately, the dissertation not being on 20th century German philosophy went <laughs> had to go back to the dissert 
dissertation. But even in my looking at early modern figures, his categories were super helpful in helping me recognize things that maybe I hadn't otherwise. Um, but eventually I did uh, have the opportunity to come back to him in a really significant way through my um, postdocs at the University of Notre Dame. Um, my research there, I was able to really go into depth with regard to his perspective about the nature of science and its relationship to liberal arts and specifically the role of science and liberal arts within the university uh, and a philosophy of education, which in wonderfully Pete-Parian ways, the relationship between philosophy and language and science and moral formation and educational formation and making all these sorts of connections. And um, so I had the wonderful privilege of being able to spend um, my uh, first postdoc four years on Pieper looking at these different uh, distinctions and relationships between them. Um, this is a more personal, less sort of academic answer to your question, but in the process of doing that, he significantly changed um, my own spiritual life. Um, he, I found myself as I was reading more and more, going out myself going outdoors more, going in more longer walks. Um, I found myself picking up. Uh, a, a put away hobby of mine, which was painting. Um, I was reading more poetry. I, and I just sort of started to notice this as I was reading Pieper and realizing and being more and more convinced of um, my engagement with creation as being a significant portion of my spiritual life, which had been atrophied for honestly um, years and years. And so in some ways, the spiritual practices ended up leading the direction of the book. And I remember towards the end of writing this moment where I like, oh my gosh, I know what this book is about now. <laughs> and then going back and like kind of saying, oh my gosh, I've been saying this this whole time, didn't really realize it. And so rewrote um, the whole book with this new frame in mind, which is that the significance of creation and engagement with creation as necessary for human flourishing and spiritual and moral development. Um, and that that engagement with creation is in fact a theology, it's a spiritual practice, it's a contemplative, it's a prayerful practice. And so, yeah, in some ways, the reading of Pieper changed the spiritual life, which eventually led to my realizing what the, <laughs> what the book was about, um, which, I, maybe everyone who writes books has uh, that sort of discovery moment where they're reading and all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, it's what about, but it was really late in the game uh, for me in this, in this project. Thanks, Nate. I, I love that description. And um, it's always wonderful to hear when people really saturate themselves in particular authors, how they can be shaped. And so I am, I'm thankful that this was a you formation uh, yeah. with Joseph Pieper. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> um, your reflection on his, um, you know, on his theology of creation and all of that um, is related to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which is yeah. his reflections on work and leisure, which may even be related to some of the things you were just sharing. Could yeah. you say a little bit about his, I don't know, philosophy of work, of work is the right way of framing yeah. it, but theology of work or, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, people... It was fascinating with the concept of work and 
more specifically with the concept of leisure since really early in his career. In fact, the book that maybe most undergraduates know most by him, especially in Catholic universities, is a really well-known book called um, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. <clears throat> Again, really accessible um, short book. It's usually connected with another book slash essay called The Philosophical Act, and they have similar themes. Um, but his engagement through into the world of theology or philosophy of work is really working with this idea of, of leisure and what is leisure. Um, and he further, like he really um, explores this idea in a lot of areas in his work. Like I said, he likes to repeat himself a lot, but in different contexts. And so um, leisure is the basis of um, our spiritual life and our culture. It's connected to a festival, a sort of theology or concept of festival, which is in turn related to a concept of liturgy. What are we doing? We're celebrating in the liturgy, um, which is in, again connected to his criticisms of certain sort of um, uh, approaches to politics, which end up being totalitarian, where people are worked to death, where work becomes so central to their life that it um, becomes the single aspect that defines them. He's, he, he said, that's, that's, if not totalitarianism already, that's a surefire way to get there. Um, he's super critical of uh, the way that the, the, the Germany sought to restore themselves after, the, after World War II. Um, his, his take was to slow down and consider um, the arts and these kinds of things consider rather than, sorry, um, jumping right into reconstruction, jumping right into buildings. And what ended up happening is, I think people was right, is that they made ugly buildings that collapsed. Um, at least in, in one case, the building just sort of collapsed on itself. Um, and if they would have heeded uh, people's advice, then maybe they would have backed off, they would have thought about culture, they would have thought about how to rebuild themselves in these ways rather than in more to, in different kinds of totalitarian kinds of um, approaches. Um, so work is a good thing. Um, Peepers often thought of as saying that work is bad. That's not the case. Um, work makes leisure possible. Um, so he's very, very clear about, about that. Um, but leisure, the arts, um, uh, painting, music, poetry, um, and religion, prayer, meditation, liturgy, and um, other kinds of social engagements like um, uh, family festival celebration, these are the things that give life to not only people, but to society. So if you want a just society, you want a decent society, it's going to be one where people are not humiliated through work, but are able to celebrate life to celebrate their essence, to celebrate who they are, who God has given, um, what has given us to be. Um, and so those leisure is in some ways a fulfillment of the God-given gift to be, to be human. Hence um, his understanding of human flourishing and uh, happiness. Um, all of these things, by the way, the arts, the hanging out with others, the um, uh, celebration of, of the Eucharist, all these things are deeply rooted in his understanding and of creation and our connection to it.
Yeah, and just a, a brief comment to follow up and feel free to nuance this differently if needed, but I don't remember if it's in that same section on work or, or chapter or if it's in the epilogue, but you say something like sometimes in our contemporary culture, especially Western American culture, yeah. we um, play so that we can work harder. Yeah. It's like refilling our batteries, um, yeah. but that's really contra peeper um, that he thinks that, yeah, as you say, this like capstone or celebration that comes at the end of a hard day's work. So, yeah. And um, yeah, that's where I think some of the, there's been a lot since the pandemic, I think we've seen a lot more um emphasis on this kind of thing, I think rightly so. Um, people are more concerned about work and its effect on mental health, what it means to sit on a Zoom screen all day and these kinds of um, these issues. And so I think people are rightly talking about this. But where I have seen periodicals and op-eds who have talked about this uh, go wrong is exactly what Peeper has told us not to do, which is do not uh, uh, leisure for the sake of work but work for the sake of leisure. So don't um, you know go on holiday so that you can become a better worker. No, that's that's not that's the wrong order. Actually, work so that you can be a better leisurer. <laughs> you can that's the that's the right order. That's the God-given order and the the order that we that's in our souls to kind of experience culture and beauty and truth and reality and these kinds of things um, in a more robust and distinctly human way. I just think it's so important in a world where time is money. Yeah, absolutely. Leisure is is weird because it you feel like you're losing money, right? Because yeah. you're giving time to something that's not going to make you money. So you feel kind of guilty about it. So it's like the way that you justify it is to say, well, this is gonna help me work harder and better when I am working. Or the the, the pressure to make the leisure a hustle. Like that's, that's, um, that's a, uh, um, that's a, 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 a false way of approaching it as well as like, oh, I can um, take this. Uh, okay, so during, before the pandemic, during my postdocs, I got really into uh, roasting my own uh, coffee. Um, it became sort of a spiritual practice of mine. And it, again, this is sort of like peeper in, in full motion, right? Cause you have to just sit there it's about your smelling. You want to smell when things are burning. You have to listen for the, the cracks in the, in the process. And the first crack means it's going to be kind of a lighter roast, second crack, crack sort of a darker roast. And so you can't be reading a book while roasting. And so I had to be focused and I would just say the Jesus prayer over and over and over again. And, and, um, and I would make what I liked coffee. I would serve it. People say, you should sell this. And my reaction was, no. I'm not going to sell this. I'm not going to turn this thing, which is spiritual life giving into a hustle. I'm not, it's not going to be my side hustle al uh, alongside something else. Um, so that's another example where we are pressured to do that. And Peter has this really great line. I can't remember if it's his or if he got it from someone else, but what good is prayer in a culture where everything has to produce something to be consumed? And the answer is nothing. It, 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 Prayer is no is nothing. What is religion in a culture where everything has to be produced or consumed? It these things begin to mean nothing or have no social value, and that's absolutely backwards uh, for people. And I've become convinced of that as well. Um, less, more activities that 
feed our souls and produce nothing that needs to be consumed or to be bought, takes up natural resources. These are um, things to be sought after as enlivening our, our souls, but also our, our culture and our communities. Yeah, they're things that have that intrinsic good, even yeah. though I do a really good job of commodifying religion. <laughs> Absolutely. Figuring out how to sell it, whether it's conference uh, tickets or books or whatever it might be. Or or numbers in pews. Or yeah. um uh the, the church is dying. What do we do to get them back? Like, no, 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 no. That's that's putting the cart before the horse. Um we we celebrate well, we worship well, we live as community well, we and we we pray well, and that's 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 the church. Um rather than the inverse being worried about you know the finances the how many people showed up um some version of success that in, has to incorporate um productivity and consumption and these kinds of uh economic um terms that have been sort of passed on to us which we just assume to be the case what would people say about higher education currently? So, I mean, you've talked just now about like the church is dying and what do we do, right? And, and there's a there's a kind of uh, personnel issue there that could be related to finances. Within yeah. higher education, there's this increasing, you know, um, uh, development of, of, a, of a kind of business model. And in light of the fact that there's declining enrollment all over, uh, all over yeah. higher education, what what would people say about uh, how how we should prioritize um, you know our 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 values and things in 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 light of this situation because you know there's there's kind of the grind where it just is like well at the end of the day it's a business we got to do what we got to do what yeah. what would people say and that's I think that's for my um, bit of research that I did on this that's a a fairly new but growing development um, I think in the um, oh gosh, in the UK, there was a parliamentarian that made some comment in the 80s, I believe, that said the job of a good education is to turn into productive work. Um, and then in the United States, the Bay Doles Act, I believe of 1983, um, or roughly around that time period, allowed universities to keep patents on discoveries that the university made. And so all of a sudden, focus change from like liberal arts, which people's definition of liberal arts are the kinds of things that produce nothing. Um, they just produce good um, character developing people in the process of reading good books, but also an engagement with creation and through the arts. So that's this, but it doesn't produce anything in any substantive sort of productive consumptive um, way of consumption. Whereas sciences all of a sudden were money makers for universities because um, anytime they discovered uh, some piece of tech, they got the money from the patents on it. And so the whole university began to sort of shift away from the humanities, away from the liberal arts towards these, um, towards the sciences. And I'm, this is, any historian of the university would probably say this is uh, oversimplification, but it, it, it does bear out something that I think we're seeing and, and present in your question, John, um, that the university is losing sort of, um, losing the, the liberal arts and the funding to go to that place where people can read and engage and 
create community in that sort of way. And on the other side, um, or the other side is just to uh, learn a vocation to go out into the world and to do, and to do something. Um, vocational schools are important. They are um, necessary. I like that um, they seem, in, in at least in American culture, they seem to be put more and more in the forefront, especially as universities are getting more and more expensive. Um, right, if you're going to be uh, a, a, a hairdresser or if you're going to be a mechanic or a plumber, you don't need to go to a four-year university, you know, drum up 200,000 in debt in order to go to a trade school. Um, you can just do that and that's more socially acceptable. That's really great, but that's not what a university is. The nature of the university for Peeper is to be that universal, which means that all this, all the topics, all the subjects, all everything is to is um, to be studied, to be engaged with, and so and that's what it means for Peeper. That's what philosophy is, and so this is one of those things where he um, says philosophy is actually a really hard thing to define um, because you can't ever really get behind it. To be philosophical is to, in some ways, say all the wisdom, bring it, give it to me, <laughs> give it to me. If you bring it to me through, uh, through physics, bring it to me. If you come through it through um, sociology, anthropology, theology, scripture, Quran, bring it to me. I, that's, that's the nature of philosophy. Um, and <clears throat> actually in a very interesting way too, theology as well. Um, they have very similar methodological approaches. They study very, very similar kinds of things, though they do it from a different from different modes, if you will. Um, philosophy is looking at what is wisdom, where theology is the object of study is God. But nonetheless, these methods are all encompassing what uh, Pieper calls a totality of things. And the university is to be universal in that way. It's bring it on, all the sciences, all the humanities. Um, everything is necessary and helpful for discerning wisdom and then from wisdom, uh, God in God's self. Can I ask a question to uh, kind of turn back to some of the main themes of your book? Yeah. Uh, one of the main themes is contemplation Absolutely. and connection to creation and then to the spiritual yeah. life. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what contemplation is and how Pieper talks about it. I think that's a really, really well-known concept in the Catholic tradition. It's significantly yeah. less well-known in the Protestant tradition. So can, can you explain to, to the Protestants listening, what, what is yeah. contemplation? <laughs> well, that's a really big question. And um, one of the, one of the early pushbacks in the book was that I didn't give a sufficient history of the idea of contemplation with the book. And that would have been a whole nother book. So um, I kind of bracketed that, that question. So I'll just give you, I'll give you Peeper's understanding of contemplation. Um, contemplation is um, a, in a sense of a spiritual vision. And what he means there by vision is not our ocular cavities taking in light and objects. What he means by there and what he drawing upon the tradition is that Vision is a metaphor for our senses. It's our tastes and our hearing, our smells, our sights, um, our touch. And contemplation is, is engagement with the created order through our, um, our sense perception. And so this is that, under, that 
idea of contemplative vision, that sort of engagement with the created order. So contemplation, um, in typical Peeperian style, he doesn't like to define things. Um, he takes what's called a negative approach. Um, he doesn't want to define things positively by saying uh, contemplation has, you know, uh, this attribute and this attribute and this attribute. He really likes to come to define certain kinds of things through the back door, if you will. Um, this is a tradition not a, going back to Augustine and to Pseudo-Dionysius, where we don't actually know what we're talking about. We can kind of talk about it, but if we ever tried to define it, we would only find ourselves like going deeper and deeper and deeper into the mystery. So contemplation is one of those things where we can start to define it and get start to get a sense of it, but the more we go into it, the deeper and deeper we find ourselves um, in the in the rabbit hole. And so happiness is this way, festival he thinks can't be defined positively. Um, what else? Uh, all, all kinds of philosophical topics. Um, but this is one of the things I think Peeper's really helpful on and what he reads St. Thomas is having a similar, or what he gets from St. Thomas is that um, definitions are great. They're really, really helpful and we should define our terms and we should know what we're talking about when um, doing a study on death, for example, death and immortality. Um, but with the recognition always that anytime we begin to talk about some sort of concept philosophically, that we'll never get to sort of the, the back end of what that is. So contemplation, in just the ways I've described, it's a contemplative vision, creation through our senses. Um, it's uh, not, uh, necessarily the reading of books. It's not necessarily using our cognitive faculties in learning material, memorizing dates for an exam. It's a restful engagement with the created order. Um, in some ways, it's the sitting on your, uh, on your front porch with a drink of your own choosing, looking at the tree and waiting for that moment of exhale when the stress of the day leaves you. Like that's a moment of contemplation. Um, but contemplation also is um, that joyous moment when you're really, really thirsty and you finally are able to get a, a drink of water. That sigh of relief, that's contemplation. It's that uh, another analogy he uses is with um, new parents who are holding their, their new child and just can't stop looking at their their child. They're just sort of enamored by them. Or the painter who continues to look at the rose as they as they paint it. These are all instances of contemplation. Um, and uh, but to try and like find the corners, to try and put a real frame to define what this is, uh, people would say, go ahead, like you're only gonna know what it is more and more, but don't expect to ever get behind that, that concept. Um, you just have to, you just have to do it, allow your, your sort of body and mind and spirit into that process um, and put down your book on contemplation that you got from Amazon or Borders Books, put that down and just go, <laughs> put down your book by 
by Nathaniel Warren on Joseph Pieper, put it down and go out into the world and, and experience and paint and write poetry. Poetry is a huge one for him. Poetry is a huge uh, way of experiencing uh, contemplation. Thanks, Nate. And sorry to listeners, I did hold up Nate's book on Zoom and I yeah, threw him the, off a little bit, but <laughs> the the yeah. book to uh the book to put down is mine. <laughs> and I, I would I would support that and like put that on, <laughs> put down this book and and uh and go out go outside and garden. Uh go plant <laughs> go plant something and get your hands dirty. That's I think mm. a, a, a an appropriate response to not only Peeper, but what I've written. Um, drawing upon his his work. Thanks, Dane. I um something that occurred to me as we were talking is that um while your book pulls on so many threads and talks about so many forms of of goodness, mm-hmm. um one of the focuses in human flourishing conversations in the modern era quite often is on um, human flourishing as a result of good relationships. Yeah. So you think about advancements in parenting or, you know, discussions about marriage or friendship or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder how some of those conversations or, or how that concept, if, if it is even distinctive or distinct, um, how they might relate to what you present in the book and, and Peeper's uh, concept of flourishing. Um, I, th- I think that Peeper falls into that at least in some nuanced way, into the view that um, to experience human flourishing is in some way to be in communion, at least, um, if not minimally with, with God, with, um, with creation, but with, with others. Um, I, often he talks about the role that um, communities play specifically when he's talking about uh, a festival of of feasting and commemorating and um, these kinds of things with other people Um, but also this goes specifically to the chapter on the card on the cardinal virtues that um, justice the virtue that is most connected to relations with other people developing that virtue is really um, essential for um, cultivating the habits of life necessary for flourishing, um, be- specifically because it's um, so helpful for uh, finding a sense of self along with community and, and so on. So um, I would find him with that that body of literature that says that the church is an essential piece of what it means to, or some religious body is what it means to find um, of human, human flourishing, of connection, the deep and genuine connections with other people as a essential figure of what it means to have um, human flourishing. So. Yeah, thanks Nate. And I, I think that this and the sort of slow spirituality that you've been advocating is such an important complement to what we're so frequently presented with so thanks again yeah and on a a personal note it was like it was reading peeper throughout the postdocs um not only on the work side and the productivity and the consumerism sort of side that we have already covered a little bit but also that community orientation of the role of the church and 
the church in some ways um, being uh, the community where theology is done, which was really, um, really important in my sensing the calling to not only be ordained, but to, um, but to recognize that my career as an academic, but also as a priest is to be bivocational. Um, that theology can be done in order to progress the field um, to create new knowledge, um, but theology is also done as a life of prayer. Um, theology is done as a life of contemplation and being a good teacher, at least in the way that Pieper defines it, is to not only um, go to the mountaintop and, and uh, experience the good, the true, and the beautiful, but then also to come back down and be able to teach it, um, to express it to others, and that the church um, has a very distinctive but overlooked role for theology, at least the way that um, we think of it, I think in terms of more academic enterprise, but theology as a prayerful contemplative exercise that has deeper spiritual ramifications and not just um, the publishing of the next article or the next monograph or um, that, that kind of thing. And so in some ways, uh, though Pieper talks a lot about the university, he talks a lot about the church too, the role of the, what is a priest. He has an essay, essay called What is a Priest, which is really interesting and super helpful. Um, but it, it, it did help me kind of discern the dual vocation of um, the, the scholar priest and what that might uh, look like, what that might entail. What do I owe a Christian community that's outside of the university, given my academic, but also my prayer life? Um, so uh, in that way, he's been incredibly devotional. That's kind of a nice segue to the question I've been wanting to ask, which is, how would you say, and maybe some of this you've already answered already, but how would you say that Pieper has influenced you maybe in specific ways mm -hmm. as, a, as a bivocational priest? Like what are the things, either practices that you have learned from him or developed by his inspiration or specific ideas that you kind of carry and seek to embody? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, thanks, Amber. Um, on the one hand, as I've said a little bit, it, it taught me. Actually, I, I would say I was going to say it reminded me, but I didn't know this before. At least I didn't consciously reflect on it. Is that engagement with the world around me, going outside, um, engaging in play of different kinds of of, of different kinds, um, was really important to my spiritual life, and that that kind of disconnection from being a cog in a machine of the workplace is really important for people to hear that and um, for me to exemplify that. Now, I can't say I've done a particularly good job. A priest's hours are more than 40 a week, most weeks. Um, but I hope that I've been able to kind of express that. Here's another thing though, and I mentioned this earlier, but I'll make this connection, is Pieper's writing being incredibly, in, uh, not only engaging, but without, jargon and accessible um, now there's varying degrees of, of accessible I grant but um, taking deep theological 
um, concepts and communicating them from the pulpit in clear and distinctive ways which people can take with them. So uh, I can talk about my, educa my education, my, my, my many degrees have allowed me to um, use all kinds of jargon. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is a jargon. Um, uh, Christology is a jargon. Um, capitalism, consumerism, scarcity, these are all jargon. But in order, in, instead of using the, the jargon in order to make myself feel better or to feel intelligent or to sound intelligent, is to not use the jargon, but to explain it in such a way that people can understand. Um, that, I think, not only allows people to um, uh, understand the concepts being taught from the pulpit, but also, I think it, dis it disarms. Um, if one is sitting in the pulpit and just hearing a barrage of like big ologies and ists and isms, um, I would turn off. I would be, I'm, this is not for me. But to be able to have the skills which developed over years and years to explain, you know, in the negative sense, which Peeper talks about, um, uh, what it's like to sit next to someone in the hospital bed as they're dying and to talk about that um, in a way that's accessible to all kinds of people. That's, an, that's a matter, that's not, not only good for, for the congregation, that's a matter of justice. Because it is, it is a kind of um, pushing people out when you use language that they don't, they don't understand. Um, using insider language keeps people out. Um, and that kind of insider language is used all the time. Um, go to the mechanic, <laughs> take your car to the mechanic and ask them to explain to you what they're doing. That's insider jargon, which makes me go, uh, just fix it, <laughs> just, you know, just fix the problem. I don't think that insider jargon belongs in the church. And if it's gonna be used, it needs to be explained in ways that people can take with them and realize what does the Trinity have to do with my spiritual life? Um, we, we, we as a, um, in, our, in our denomination, in my parish, we are deeply Trinitarian. We pray along with the Trinity every single week and multitude of factors. Come up to Trinity Sunday, most priests sort of freak out and, and you know, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to kind of rely on either big language or to not preach it at all. But to be able to explain it in ways that uh, multiple people can engage with it and take away what the Trinity has to do with their prayer life, with their work life, with their family life, with all these other aspects, what, how the Trinity helps them engage their trauma, how the Trinity helps them engage their, um, their just daily life circumstances, work, conflicts. That is a huge Piparian uh, moment of, of inspiration, right? say things in, in words that people can understand. That's not a crazy idea, but it's maybe something that like theologians and philosophers and um, sociologists and anthropologists and physicists have sort of forgot. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a sort of remnant of a kind of post-academic class thing, uh, keeping people down by not letting them in. Um, but uh, it's a deep injustice and not something that uh, should be permitted for us to, um, allow any longer in the, in the parish. I'm not sure if that answered your question. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, it really did. That was, that was a great answer. Thank you very much for that. Especially in, in the world of philosophy, I, I think the philosophers that I respect the most mm -hmm. are the ones that are the clearest. Actually, this is a kind of a, a story that Jack okay. Caputo, who's one, you know, one continental philosopher once accused Merrill Westfall, who's another uh -huh. contemporary philosopher, of being the most courageous continental philosopher that he knew because he spoke with such clarity that people could understand him enough to disagree with him. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I love that story so much, but I just think about how much I respect Merrill's way of communicating. And it's yeah. precisely that as, as whether you're a young student or you're someone sitting in the pews that it's invitational and it's writing a service or communicating a service as opposed to communicating for your own self-promotion. And to a very small body of people who already agree with you or are part of your, your little guild. Um, and I think theology, I think philosophy have way more to offer than that. Um, and I mean, good, I mean, good theology. I'm, I'm not the, not the vast majority of <clears throat> easy access books, you know, that we can, you can easily pick up, but I mean, really great, deep, thoughtful philosophy and theology <clears throat> that um, can deeply affect people's lives that are rooted in the tradition that are um, <clears throat> really thoughtful. Um, I think I think these things matter, but we've kept it a secret, and and Peter didn't want to keep it a secret. Um, he was dedicated to teaching his entire life. Um, <clears throat> his view of Saint Thomas was not that he was a researcher in the ivory tower, but that he wrote to be understood, to be, um, to be read and understood by students, which is why the Summa Theologiae is written the way it is. Um, and he goes to Jesus and to Plato and says, they didn't write books, <laughs> they didn't publish things, um, they, they taught. And that's, that's significant to people. And I think it should be significant to us as people who follow in their footsteps as theologians and, and philosophers. Well, Reverend Dr. Warren, thank you so much for joining us and uh, chatting with us about Joseph Pieper and his contributions, and especially thinking about uh, leisure and, uh, yeah, the, the use of jargon. I think the, the, these were some really um, uh, insightful things for us to reflect on, so I just really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me with you here today and discussing this, uh, this work that I've done.